This podcast is brought to you courtesy of Renault, the world's most exclusive sunglasses. It's now available at renault.co.uk and at select boutiques around the globe. You are listening to the Official Concept Podcast. Enjoy listening to Alan. Today on the show, we're interviewing Troy Mundell. Welcome. How are you? I'm good, Alan. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on. Uh, no problem. I'm doing really uh, fabulous right now, seeing that you're on the show. <laughs> so the first question I'd like to ask you is, what were the greatest obstacles you encountered while filming Prey? And how did you get the role? Um, let's see. Uh, how did we get the role? The, the role, uh, basically auditioned for it. Did not know what it was when we first got it. We, we got this audition, uh, which seemed really cool. We were told that it was a period piece. Uh, early 1700s, it was for the role of a French trapper. Uh, and back in those days, it was called Skulls. And um, uh, they used the same sides for, for us and the boys. So myself, Mike, uh, Nelson, all auditioned with the, the big beard sides. And it wasn't until about a week after my agent gave me a call. He said, hey, they're, they're eyeing you up for this role. And he kind of said, uh, you know, it's, it's a feature shoots in Calgary. And when he told me what it was, that's when I was kind of like, oh, my God, wow. Like, it, it was kind of a, a bit of a surreal feeling knowing that there is a possibility that you could be working on a feature and, and working on a Predator movie, which was amazing. Um, as far as obstacles, um, I mean, I already had the long hair, I already had the beard. So, uh, you know, that wasn't an obstacle at that point, but, um, I would probably, oh, here we go. I know exactly what the obstacle was is. So when we went in, uh, they gave us prosthetic teeth. So we had our teeth molded, uh, so they could, you know, make them a little bit more, uh, a la 1719, because obviously dentists and uh, dental hygiene wasn't a big thing back in those days. So we had like the decayed teeth and the keys, the teeth were all like spread. So they gave us a practice set and, you know, every day we would pop those things in and, and work our mouth so we could get the, the lines out properly. Cause it, it was a bit of an obstacle for a while until we got used to it. How long did it take? Oof. Uh, I got mine, I think the first week we were there and I, I practiced daily, uh, maybe even sometimes twice a day. Um, and it, it took a while and, uh, you've seen the, the movie, obviously. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, after the predator, uh, you know, takes care of me, uh, takes care of my group up on the glade, I run down that hill. So knowing that I was going to be running full out, I also had to make sure that I practiced those in my mouth and running. So I would actually put them into my, my, my mouth when I would go jogging in Calgary so I could get used to them oh. uh, with, with heavy breathing and, and all the other things. Was there any irritation? There was at first, um, just because the the uh, mold went a little higher up on one side. But after a couple of days, we they, we took them back in and they sanded them all down for me, and they fit perfectly. So when you were auditioning for this role, uh, did you go in there in person to audition, or did you do it um, online through a Zoom call? It was a self tape, believe it or mm. not. Uh, yeah. So how are you finding it? How are you finding it now that they um, that it's changing? Uh, do you mean casting via self tape? Yeah. Yeah. I personally, I, I personally love going in. I love being in the room. Uh, I mean, there are pros and cons to it. Some people like love the uh, love the self tape because they can do it x amount of times and get the take just right. I personally, uh, with my preparation for an audition, is I love to have uh, like Brian Cranston. Like he likes to go into an audition with about five or six different variations, and he tosses his best one out, and if 
he gets a redirect, then he's got like three other ones that he can pop in and, and, and properly deliver to the casting director. And that's something that I like. I like going in. I like feeling the energy of the room. I like collaborating with the casting director. I like getting my feedback and my redirection and then giving them something else. But with the self-tapes, it's you have one crack and you've got to try to give them what you think may be something viable and not get a redirect from it. So I, I personally like the, the rooms and I do hope we go back to that. So when you're auditioning uh, with a self-tape, uh, do they critique any of your work and then send it back to see if you can um, elaborate on a few other things or is it just one and done? One and done unless you get a call back. Oh, no way. Yeah. Because, yeah. So, so if, I, if um, because well, it's like I've had a lot of actors uh, who have been on the podcast and, uh, you know, we're, we're all talking about uh, the new way of, of casting and how it's changing the industry because mm-hmm. so many people don't have to move. Let, let's say if the, um, let's say if the project is happening over in LA, you don't even have to be in LA to get the casting job. That's correct. And I mean, that's one of the pros of it because mm-hmm. it opens up the, the casting net to a much broader geographical region. That, that, that's actually fantastic. Yeah. It's almost like everybody has the opportunity, but because everybody has the opportunity, it's very like hit and miss. It's like you yes. either get it and you're very like fortunate, then you can move into the next step or you're just automatically push aside because there's another thousand people trying to get the same role as you. Yeah, it's an inst- interesting beast, the self-tape uh, since it started. What do you do throughout the Christmas season as a tradition and what does it mean to you? Well, my, my mother and I have this Christmas tradition that we started a, a few years back. Um, back in 2017, um, I had started this short film and um, she had saw some of the dailies of it and she wanted to do something to, to kind of help the homeless. And she'd asked me, she'd say, Troy, what, what can I do? And I'm, because my mom knits. My mom is a knitting and Christmas movie watching fanatic. She loves that. She does it year round. So I said, well, mom, um, you know, I've heard because one night I was coming home uh, from work and I was giving out sandwiches. I was under this underpass and there was about three or four youth there. And I gave them some sandwiches and, and one of them had asked me if I had socks. And at first, it's kind of like socks. What, why are they asking me for socks? But then I realized it's, it's Vancouver. It was January. Um, have you ever been to Vancouver, Alan? No, not yet. Oh, okay, gotcha. And Vancouver is very wet, especially during the, the winter months. So it made sense that, you know, someone would ask for socks, fresh pair of socks. So I told my mom, I said, mom, you know, they, they like socks. So she said, okay, I'll, I'll start making some socks. So lo and behold, uh, in November of that year, she's like, Troy, I made some socks. I'm going to send them to you. So she sent me a picture and I was like, wow. She, she had ended up knitting uh, close to 80 or 90, 100 pairs of socks, whatever it was. So she sent me these boxes and uh, I, I wrapped them up in Christmas paper and I put a little label on them, you know, Merry Christmas, uh, you know, love Doreen. And because I was in Vancouver for that particular Christmas, I ended up going down to the downtown east side, which is, um, it's, it's an area uh, that is um, marginalized. There's a lot of homelessness uh, in that area. So I went down to Oppenheimer Park and started handing out these Christmas gifts. And it was such a, a, a moving moment when you are face to face with someone and you give them something on Christmas day, because Christmas day is a very special day for everybody. Um, and it kind of, when you're alone on the streets, it kind of exacerbates the, the situation. But when you get a gift and when they find out that it was actually made for them by someone's mom, you know, you could, you could see the, the change and the look in their eyes. And there was one specific tent that I'd given a, a few of the gifts out. And one of them asked, like, who's Doreen? And I said, well, Doreen's my mom. She sent the, the, the mittens over. And, she, and he said, uh, you know, you tell Doreen that she's priceless. And when I told my mom this, you know, she was just so touched and moved by it 
that she immediately started knitting things for the next Christmas. And she got more elaborate. She got more into it. So she's now knitting wrist warmers, socks, uh, scarves, and she'll send them to me. And then, of course, we'll, we'll do the whole thing over on Christmas Day. So we've been doing this uh, since Christmas 2018. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's pretty, uh, it, it's, it's, it feels good to be able to, you know, give back to your community, even, even though if it's only 80 or 100, but at least you're touching those people in that circumstance. It's so interesting how, how we feel emotion. It's like when we give things and help people, it's like we're, we're giving a bit of ourselves to them, but we feel really good afterwards as well. And it's like you and your mother are able to touch these people's hearts where, you know, it's like a lot of people who are homeless have had so much tragedy in their life. Oh. And so that's one of the main reasons why they've become addicts, because, you know, it's like with one of the main things that they talk about with heroin is that it's supposed to feel like a warm hug, you know, from like your mm -hmm. mother. And so it's like a lot of these people didn't weren't raised up in a loving atmosphere. So they had to go through, you know, another avenue to feel accepted and, and feel, you know, uh, cherished. And yeah, it's just I think that it's like you, you doing those things would not only let you feel great, but also open their eyes up to feel that other people are there looking out for them as well. And they don't feel alone. Yeah. And I mean, how close are any of us to being homeless? I mean, these people, like you said, they, they were once part of a family and some unfortunate or tragic circumstances have put them on the street. And I know that I've been in some pretty financially perilous positions. And if I didn't have a mom in those circumstances, I would be on the street, you know, or, or whoever would be on the street. Um, and I mean, homelessness is growing. Uh, the rates are growing incredibly and it doesn't seem to be slowing down, which is, which is incredibly tragic. Yeah, honestly, I have no idea what's happening with the world because of the whole cost of living and, and oh everything that's going up as well. It's horrific. Like uh, over in Australia, everything's going up even more over here. And, and there's definitely become, you know, more homeless people as well because of the fact. Yeah, like, for instance, I was uh, down at the grocery store yesterday uh, with inflation and uh, I was going to pick up some strawberries. And the strawberries were uh, 735 uh, US because I'm in Los Angeles. And because I still transfer my money, like my, I have the Canadian exchange rate and the Canadian exchange rate is not very good in the US. You know, you're like, wow, that's like $14 for, for strawberry. Like who, who can- What are they usually? Uh, I think they're used depending on, like when I first moved here, they were about four or five bucks. What? Oh yeah. My God. Yeah. yeah. So I, it's, I, it's, I it's, think, it's, um, honestly, it's like, I hope that I'm wrong, but I honestly feel like we're either coming to a point where we're like in the end of times or in the beginning of a new era. <laughs> it's like one oh. or the other. It's like, one. <laughs> yeah. it's so much great. Cause over in Australia, um, we've just had like huge floods, um, all over the countries and, and massive wow. storms. Uh, and not only that, it's just like, uh, over in India and a lot of the other countries, they're fully flooded as well. And all these horrific things are going on. It's, it's such a, such a weird point in time right now. It is. And it doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. The digital era has come, but do you believe that this to be a double-edged sword? There are more fresh faces on the big screen, but fewer are memorable. What do you anticipate will occur in the film industry? That's a very interesting question. Um, I think that there might be, uh, I, I, yeah, I think there might be a, a period of like peak content creation and oversaturation. Um, you know, there's so many, I mean, for uh, to be an actor right now is great because there's so much opportunity um, and so many different and diverse productions that are going on, which is fantastic and long overdue. 
Um, but it's like, how do you, how do you watch all of this? Like at, at some point in time, there are only so many sets of eyeballs to, uh, to watch so many shows. So you have to really make sure that your production ha- kind of has all of those qualities to make it a must-see item. Mm. And not only that, I think that a lot of the major companies that produce film, are, it, it's, it's scary to be 100% creative because you don't know if it's going to work or not. So you don't want to spend you know, $100 million on a movie that's very creative and very new and could be like a new era of movies. But then if it just like fails and bombs, then you've just lost all that money. And people could like see it as a horrific loss. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Mm. How did you become an actor? And what techniques have you learned over the years in the film industry? That is another interesting question. Um, so I, I'm basically from a village in southeastern Quebec. Uh, population, you know, back when I was growing up in there might have been, you know, 900. Uh, we had a, a, a couple of communities around us. And, you know, our village was so small, we actually had to cross the bridge into another province to, you know, for all of our services and stuff like that. And back in those days, acting wasn't a big thing. We, I grew up, we grew up playing competitive hockey. That's what we did, uh, you know, growing up. And it wasn't until after I graduated from university, I was, I did, honestly, Alan, I had no idea what I was going to do. I, everybody was going off and doing their careers. And here I was sitting on the couch, you know, working at Subway. Uh, I had no purpose or direction. And I ended up realizing that I was doing the exact same thing that I had been doing, you know, my entire life was I was just sitting there imitating the actors on TV. And I was just like, you know what, what, what if I, what if I do this? Like, it's always been kind of in the back of my mind, but like Hollywood is so distant, you know, from Cross Point or Pointe de la Croix, Quebec. It's just, it's not even on the radar, but I decided to do it. Um, I didn't tell anybody what I was doing because I, I would have got laughed out of town. And not only that, my parents would have just been like, no, you're not doing this. So I, uh, I bought a train ticket and packed a backpack and hopped on a train and took the 15, was it 15? Yeah, it's 15 hour train ride to Toronto. And um, my cousin was nice enough to let me sleep on her floor. And she told me, she goes, you know, why don't you try, you know, background to see if this is something you like, you know, it may not be for you. So I said, okay, you know, why not? So I ended up signing up and my first day on set was this uh, for a movie called uh, Last Night. It was directed by Don McKellar. And I was there, we're under an overpass and there's like maybe 50, 80, 90 BG. And, you know, I got picked out of the crowd to be this little gaggle of five bad guys and then they took us down the set and then out of the five i got picked to be the main bad guys bad guy and this is i'm fresh off the train i've been in toronto for maybe i don't know a week i had no idea what a film set was no idea what any of the positions were you know, people people were talking i couldn't even tell i didn't even know what an ad was i didn't know what was going on um i just knew that some guy was telling me that when the car came in you take the golf club out of your bag he's gonna hop on the hood of the car you hand him the golf club and he's gonna smash the car the actress is gonna get out of the car i'm like okay cool so this goes down a few times and Alan, I've never felt so exhilarated in my life. I was just like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And, and I knew that instant and I've never been so sure of anything in my life. Like this is what I want to do. I want to tell stories. I want to be an actor. This is what I want to do. And later I found out that the actress in the scene is actually Sandra Oh. So my first scene on a movie set ever in my life was in a scene with Sandra O, oh, which is pretty wild. <laughs> so uh, what were we studying in university or college? Uh, that is a potpourri, Alan. That is a very big potpourri. I started off with the delusions that I was going to be a heart surgeon. I can't believe I'm admitting this uh, oh, you know, on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Delusional, completely delusional. Um, 
<laughs> I was uh, I had a double major in psych and bio, and my first year really did not go according to plan. So I ended up switching out of that and uh, switching into the arts program. So I ended up graduating uh, a million years later with a degree in French and uh, anatomy and histology, of all things. Okay, how many years were you in, were you studying for? Like in total. In total, I, I did the decade program. So basically, I, I oh. did four. Yeah, I did four at Acadia. And then uh, I ended up having to do more at the University of Toronto to kind of complete my, uh, to finish off my degree, so to speak. Is that, is that with the additional years as well, with the wanting to become a heart surgeon? Well, see, that was the thing. So when I moved to Toronto, um, I actually wanted to prove to myself that I could take science courses. So I, I was studying um, anatomy and histology, embryology, uh, histology, and what was the other one? There was another course I can't remember. Um, uh, but those are all courses out of the Med-Sci building. So um, I, I did do actually well in those. Um, and yeah, that was, that was what I graduated with. So after performing over in uh, Toronto, what was the next step that you went through? The next step after that was uh, running down to Theatre Ontario multiple times a week. Because back in those days, you had to like physically go down somewhere to look for auditions on a wall. Um, you know, doing that and, you know, going out for auditions and finally starting to book some music videos. So I did a couple of independent music videos, pieced those together and then made a very primitive looking demo reel and, and shop that around. And I ended up getting signed by Ford Talent uh, back in back in those days. Um, and then after once I started working with Ford, I started to get access to commercials. So I started I, I did a lot of odd commercial auditions and started booking commercials uh, back in the early 2000s. Oh, damn. <laughs> so uh, when did you break it into the movie industry? That would have been, so I, I did, you know, back in the day, it would have been when I left Toronto. So Toronto was a very commercial era for me. I, I did, you know, multiple commercials ranging from like RBC Olympic hockey ones. I did a couple of beer commercials, uh, both sides of the border. Um, it wasn't until I left Toronto to go to Vancouver um, that I started to get auditions for TV and film. And that's when things started to very slowly happen. But it was actually quite a, a long and arduous uh, trip because I landed in Toronto, uh, Toronto, I'm sorry, I landed in uh, Vancouver in 2006. And it wasn't until about 2000. And 10, 11, that I decided to take matters into my own hands. I was like, you know, I'm not getting, you know, auditions that I feel can uh, showcase my talent. So I started writing my own stuff. I decided that I was going to write a series. Um, I was going to pay for the series somehow. And I was going to put this up and hopefully use this as stepping stones. So I ended up writing Single and Dating in Vancouver. And through some wild luck and perseverance and just putting your head down and plowing through obstacles, uh, you know, made it happen. Because uh, in those days, I was working at Starbucks as a barista slash uh, shift supervisor. So, you know, you're working all week, working uh, the open shift. Uh, and then I would bartend and cater in the afternoons. And then on Fridays after work, we'd run down, grab the gear, cram it into the car, you know, drive back, put it into my apartment for safekeeping. We'd shoot all weekend. And then I would go open on Monday. And uh, Alan, I had the best manager ever. Her name's Donna Martin. 
And she was so amazing. She is, as long as I made my hours and, and, you know, kept the customers happy, she gave me a little bit of leeway. So my first morning break at 10, 15, I would run home, hop in the car, put the gear in the car, run over, empty the gear, take the car back to my house and then come back to work and try to get that done in about a half hour, 45 minutes and then finish my shift. So this, this was going on during the entire time we shot from like 2003 to 2015. Um, oh wow! Well. Always so every weekend you were doing this. We were, yeah, it, we were, really? we were, yeah, notorious for because we were very ambitious back in those days. We just didn't want to make because uh, web series was a bad word, you know, back in 2013. If someone said they were doing a web series, like oh, a web series, we wanted to kind of, <laughs> yeah, uh, we we wanted to do like a digital series, you know, or an online show or what have. So instead of making these little tiny three minute uh, videos, we actually had a fully fleshed out series and it was serialized. So it wasn't a one and done. It was like multiple plots going on over the course of several episodes. Our first episode was like 30, 35 minutes. After that, we were shooting like, you know, 20 minute episodes. But because everybody was so gracious and the actors came on for free, the crew came on for free, um, you know, we fed everybody very well. But it was just something that we had to do on most weekends um, to make sure that we weren't interfering with people's work schedules. And it turned out great. Like, surprisingly, the, the series did really well. Uh, it got a whack of nominations. It got some wins. It won uh, me a trip to France. So myself and my producing partner, Chad Riley, ended up going to Marseille, France back in 2016 to the Marseille Web Fest. So it, it actually did well for what it was. Yeah, it's just taking step by steps. Step by step. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, for me, the, the biggest changes started when there was always a teacher in Vancouver that I had heard of. His name was, back in those days, he, his name was Ben Ratmer. And uh, I just didn't have enough money to, to afford the course back in those days. And uh, the Actors Union in Vancouver is called UBCP. And they put on a sponsored weekend with Ben Ratner, who's now Ben Emanuel. So, you know, it was like 50 bucks for the weekend. You kind of get a chance to study with this person. And that first weekend that I studied with him, I was like, wow, this guy is amazing. Like there was this woman up doing a scene. She did her scene. He gave her some tweaks and it completely elevated her performance. And I was like, well, I need to get in with this guy somehow. So, you know, I was still working at Starbucks. I was still doing my catering, but that was just paying the rent. So I ended up uh, doing some more computer programming and I was actually delivering food by bike, you know, whenever I could just to oh, you know, pay oh. for my feet. It was, yeah, it was pretty wild. Uh, started paying food by bike uh, to get into these classes. And when I started studying at Ben's, it would have been uh, late 2017. And in 2018, I decided that after hearing one of the podcasts that Ben played, because Ben Ben is so great. Like when you go to class with him, you just, you just don't sit there and do scenes. It's a, it's such a really great, supportive, amazing community. You know, he's always himself going out and studying with different teachers and bringing new techniques back. He's also listening to podcasts. And if he finds something inspirational, he'll play it, you know, while the other students are getting their scenes set up. And this one particular night, he had a interview with Ray Liotta. And, you know, Ray Liotta was like, yeah, I worked on this movie. And then after that, I went back to class. And then I went back and I worked on this movie and then I went back to class. And, it, you know, sometimes you hear things for a long time, but you hear it, but you don't really get it. And then sometimes when you're actually ready to, to truly hear it, it kind of hits you a little bit harder. When I heard Ray Liotta say that, I was like, you know, it, it, that's what you need to do to, to, to actually strive in this industry. Um, so I made my decision that I was either going to be on set or in an acting class. And since 2018, that's exactly what I've done. And that's when things really started to, to change for me because I had a lot of time to make up for, uh, you know, in my craft and, and becoming better at what I was doing. 
With the popularity of Prey and your involvement with the Predator picture, were you a fan of the first film? And if so, did you want to include anything from it? Oh, I, I mean, I, we, we loved any action movies from back in those days. And with Arnold Schwarzenegger, absolutely big fan of the first Predator movie. Um, what do you mean by include anything in it? So, you know, some of the moments where it was like just pure nostalgia, where they, you know, grab each other's hand and do like, you know, a really firm handshake, <laughs> you know, like, show like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. with the, like, I know, like, I know that you probably like, you know, wouldn't be able to put it in the actual film, but did you guys ever like just joke about it? Just being like, man, that'd be awesome if we could do something like that. We, we did actually, uh, the whole <laughs> cast was so amazing. Uh, we did create a bit of a bubble myself and, uh, Bennett and Nelson and uh, Mike and yeah there there were I, I can't remember what the specifics were but yeah we were totally uh throwing stuff around on, on some evening what was the uh funniest moment on set moment on set that's uh that's an interesting question I honestly I honestly I don't know I I, I can't actually answer that I'm drawing a blank <laughs> Alan <laughs> no that's so good what what as an actor what was the toughest on the set of Prey yeah yeah so there's there's one moment that comes to mind. So um, so obviously this is my my first big budget feature that I was on. So there's 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 pressure with that. And there, we were going to be shooting the glade scene. So I'm up at the top of the glade, looking through my telescope at uh, Nadu and Tabe, you know, waiting for the predator to come in so we can spring our trap. And um, Dan and Jeff wanted some very specific lighting. So basically we were aiming for the golden hour. So you know you're in your trailer. You know, it's supper time. They bring you out. We go up to the glade. We rehearse the scene. We, we, you know, consult, collaborate, make sure everything is great. But then we have to sit there and wait until the, the sun and the light gets just right. And that's the time when, you know, the voices start to come in because you've got the time to start, you know, the, the little voice that wants self, self-doubt, which is, which is weird. You're, you're sitting there, you're looking over the glade. It's beautiful. You see the, the, the massive um, uh, super techno crane. You've got the, I think it was six or seven horses behind you. And there is this move that comes in with the crane. You've got to deliver some line. There's Rambel beside me. Uh, the horses, that the, the stuntmen have to fall off the horses and the horses kind of go down the glade. And, you know, you're thinking to yourself, like, you need to make sure that you get this. Because number one is you don't want to have the stunt guys fall off the horses any more times than they need to because of something that you've done. And the resets to get the go down to get the horses and bring the horses back up and then the stuntmen back on the horses. So there was a bit of pressure there. And especially because you only had a limited amount of time with the light. So that was that was the moment where I felt the most pressure. And knock on wood, luckily everything went smooth. And I attribute that to just being in class all the time and and training all the time. It's like being an athlete. You know, you can't expect to go do a uh, a track meet uh, cold if you haven't been training for the last couple of months. So yeah, that's where the training comes in, very handy. So with the training, uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on what techniques you learn? Absolutely. So with with Ben's class. Uh, we do a five-week scene study on uh, Broadway plays. So we are memorizing and using, you know, complex Pulitzer Prize winning um, material, five to seven pages of theater scenes. And we work on that for five weeks. Um, in addition to that, I, I just want to train with the best. So I am constantly looking for different teachers. Ben ended up studying with a woman called Patsy Roddenberg, who's a master voice coach out of the UK. 
And she has this absolutely amazing circle system, uh, first circle, second circle, and third circle. And it's not just for acting, but it's also, you can use it in life. And it's actually very transformative, um, amazing. So she was on my list of teachers that I wanted to study with. I had an opportunity to study with her in New York this past March. Uh, I went there for a three-day intensive with her and astonishing, amazing woman. Um, I would recommend it to anybody uh, who wants to go further with their acting. I've also studied with Larry Moss. I would love to study with him in person. I think he is such a treasure with all of the knowledge that he has. Ours, because of COVID, was online. But yeah, I think he's still doing online courses. But if he ever changes to in-person, I'm there in an instant. And um, I am now studying at Ivana Chubbuck's studio. So anywhere. And there's also um, some courses at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland that I'd like to go to. And during the year of COVID, I was actually supposed to go to the UK and do a two-week program at uh, RADA, which I still want to do at some point when I've got some free time. So what were the creative techniques that you implemented in the, uh, the movie Prey? With Prey, um, I, would, I would say the circle system, definitely. Mm. Uh, I would say it's a combination of all. Uh, and there's also something to a little, a little gem that I picked up uh, from a guy, that uh, Jerry Trimble, who we used to work out together at the same gym in Vancouver. And he told me about what Anthony Hopkins does. And Anthony will practice his scenes 200 times. And I was like, wow, really? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jerry swore by it because he started, you know, booking like mad after this. And Jerry was also in Heat uh, back in the day. So he's, he's an accomplished actor as well. So what I do is the second I get any material, uh, I record the lines on my voice recorder. And I used to have an app where every time, you know, you'd run the scene, you'd click the little app button, it would make a noise and I would tally it and not stop until I get to usually 100 or 200. But all of my lines on Prey were done at least to 250. Um, and when you get to that point with the lines, they're just so ingrained on you. It gives you so much freedom. And it's, it's a technique that I am so glad that I got my hands on because it does make a huge difference. Is that one of the main ways in how you're able to develop the character? Yes, absolutely. So during that exploration, and we also uh, managed to get our hands on some um, podcasts. So we, we had this one podcast that we were all listening to. It's kind of a, a, a particular view of history uh, when the European settlers came over from Europe. Uh, and I also watched a lot of period piece movies. So I watched uh, The Patriot. There's a great series called La Révolution, which is on Netflix in French. Um, I would watch a lot of French film and uh, practice my French accents to make sure that my French accents were bang on because we were actually playing French, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, French France trappers as opposed to, say, Quebecois French Canadian trappers who would come maybe a little later in the, the time period. Who is one of your biggest role models and mentors throughout your life? I think role models would be Brad Pitt. Um, I have always thought he's so underrated. I think he's so talented. Um, I, I, you know, constantly am watching what he's doing. I try to watch, you know, as, as much of him as I can. I just think he's fantastic. As far as mentors are concerned, uh, Ben Emanuel, he has been, I, I owe a lot to where I am because of him. Um, he is an amazing teacher. He is so invested in all of his students. He has been the game changer for me. Given that you have written, directed, performed, and edited shows, could you describe how you put your creative ideas into motion? Um, I'm a bit of a thinker. So for me, I kind of think all the time. And then when I finally get the urge or the time to sit down in front of a computer, depending on what I'm writing, um, there'll be some music going on. And it just kind of just, I just try to get out as much as I can. And then I'll just do pass after pass and kind of refine pieces of it here and there. 
So when you're starting with a story, how do you develop that story from the beginning to end? Um, oh, I, well, I mean, I use my, my wall. I'm a big wall guy. I love to have stuff all over my wall. And the, the pieces of the wall, or sorry, the pieces of the story go up on the wall. And I just need to step back and see the whole as an arc so I can go in and make my changes for it. Because when, because uh, I like to create little movies as well. Um, like nothing yeah. crazy, uh, but I just did this for a hobby. And when I'm writing a story, I always think of the first scene and the last scene. And then I create my story around that. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Yes, yes, absolutely. I understand completely what you're saying there. Yeah. yeah. So with um, so with your uh, storyboard, is that how you implement your story? Or is it just one scene after another? Usually, I see the beginning for some reason. The beginning is always very clear. Um, and the, the ending will take a little bit more time. And the ending can sometimes morph a little bit, but not too much. And then like you, filling in the, the colors in between. That's cool. So you are you have you got any projects on the go right now as far as writing is concerned? Um well I'm I'm writing a book currently. Um Ooh. but that's not going to be released until early next year. Uh but then I'm always I just cuz I I love creating um just small videos or uh just little tiny skit videos of me and my brother. Um and you know and, you know, <laughs> yeah I, and I I just I love it's kind of like I love creating content but i also love just creating it for myself you know because sometimes i'm not gonna lie it gets a little bit cringy <laughs> and it's, it's like like 100 it's right. like it gets real funny and you know it's like i know that there's a lot of people that just wouldn't get it and i'm kind of yeah. like you know it's like i love like i like me and my brother we make videos at night time and we're just there laughing our ass off when we're editing it. And we just can't believe that we're making these ridiculous, like, skit videos. Yeah. And, and it's just like, we're just like, we can't upload this. It's like, no one can see it. It's just so, like, cringe-ass. But, yeah, it's, um, it's great. It's a bit like, you know the old 90s Adam Sandler movies? Yes. Yeah, it's kind of, I'm not, like, I'm not saying those movies are bad. I'm, I'm just saying, like, it's kind of made like that. So it's just, like, real out there well i mean there, you, you never know there may be this huge untapped market that you're not aware of you put your films up and your movies up and you could be like boom off the yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah maybe that could be the next big thing because yeah. <laughs> like, yeah they're pretty um they're pretty unique if you know what i mean like, right, right, yeah. like maybe maybe after that like um i have i have a couple of just small edits that are like two minutes long just for like tiktok yeah. and stuff um but they have like little stories and I, I after this if you want me to i could send you like a couple of the the videos uh, and you can check them out I but um yeah, yeah yeah but um so so when you're developing a character either for one of your projects or or you are the character it's it's like what are the the fundamental foundations that you're trying to put in place with them as far as bring the uh, character to life and then bring the like are you looking for the, the process that i used for like once yeah. i get a script yeah so, just, just like let's say if someone's wanting to um like learn how to become an actor uh i'm not saying that you know you have to answer the full thing but just what's the, the foundation of the, the techniques that you use i would just say if someone wants to become an actor the first thing that i would recommend and, and I, I strongly recommend is is getting into a good scene study class with a fantastic teacher that speaks to you and and don't stop just work and the only way to get better at doing scenes and developing characters is to actually put up scenes and working on characters there's there's no way around it when you when you first started to audition was there any like uh 
was were there any additions where you felt like you just bombed and you were like that's that's it or you're always just even if you were to have a negative you know um like feedback you just always get back onto the horse oh my goodness yes when i first started auditioning um i had really bad nerves just really bad nerves and there was this one particular casting director in vancouver that i wanted to get in to see and i finally got in to see them and i was so nervous and i went in and we did the audition and you know there's this moment of silence and the casting director just said huh you did that whole audition backwards interesting and i was like oh no and then i left the room and i did not see that casting director for oh my goodness months after that i was mortified alan absolutely <laughs> mortified so basically i went in and i reversed all of the lines in the audition <laughs> really yeah yeah and i was unaware of it i didn't even realize until she was <laughs> oh my god so wait yeah. um so that that just happened because you were really nervous and your mind just read it all incorrectly yeah, yeah. And and oh, so back wow. in the, yeah, well back in those days, I was I was preparing for an audition, but I didn't realize how much more preparation I needed in order to walk into an audition and and properly deliver. Yeah. Yeah, it was embarrassing, Alan. It was it was pretty bad. Well, that, that it's all good. That's how we learn. But the other yeah. thing is like the reason the reason why I asked that question is because it's like I think that within the acting industry, where you'd had to go in for an audition and fill all the nerves and then, you know, um, show uh, what, what skill set you have. And then if they like you, then you can go into the next process and then you can get the role. It's like the first step's gone. So you get even more of an abundance amount of pressure. You know, it's like, so if you send it, you know, with a, with a new era, so you send a, uh, a video and they love it. They think that it's great. You're in the next segment now. And it's like, if you've never really been in that world, it could really be very, very intimidating. Because mm -hmm. it's like, you're traveling over there and you still might think that you can just fail at any time. They could kick you out. Yeah, absolutely. So did you ever get, any um, imposter syndrome or anything? Constantly. Uh, the first mm. time that I did not have the imposter syndrome was, uh, I think, after Prey. It was after Prey that I, I started to feel more confident. Um, everything just kind of started to fit in. The, the, the training was starting to fit in. Uh, going out and training with these other teachers was starting to settle in. Um, and yeah, I just felt much more confident because after Prey, I moved on and I did an Amish sin. And, you know, obviously you're always nervous. You always, you, you always think that you're going to get fired at, at any point. But because I had the, the proper tools going into an Amish sin, it wasn't always the forefront of my, my thought process. Mm. I think that it's really good that you've moved on because it took me a long time for me to um, not have imposter syndrome as well. I've, like, I've had it for most of my life. Same, same. Yeah, I, I've even had it um, even with my fitness and working out. Like, I work really hard to go to the gym and everything, but it's really weird. It's just like, even though that I, I'm, a, I'm a big guy now, it's like I still feel like that I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really weird. And, it's like, and it goes the same thing with creativity. It's like I love, you know, doing photo shoots and I love doing cinematography and, and you know, making movies. But I'm just like, even to now, it's like, am I good enough? You know, it's like, is, the, is the content that I upload, is it up to my very best? And are people going to be able to enjoy it in the same way that I do? And so, you know, I, I kind of put onto myself where, you know, where I don't upload a couple of videos because I have a perception of who I, you know, of what I think about the content that I make with my brother. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, I think that's just my own walls that are built up.
it's weird the mind isn't it and now that we've talked about it a bit more i'm gonna have to go back and say that i probably still have imposter syndrome i'm sure the next time i step on set i'll be like whoa i'm sure the nerves will come back in and it will all be there i'm you know i'm wondering if it ever completely totally goes away it's it's strange because for me I kind of like it, <laughs> you know, it's not like, it's not like, um, like, I'm not saying, you know, uh, that I don't deserve any of this. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying yeah. like having, you know, it's like making a film and then feel nervous that you're about to upload it. It's I, I, I like the feeling. Yeah. It, it makes me feel a bit more alive. It's like, oh man, there's something on the line. Yeah. Okay. You know? Okay. Yeah. Abs- yeah. 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 I, I totally get that. And, and it goes with the exact same thing with like, you know, uh, doing a podcast, like every single interview, like I don't feel abundantly nervous, but it's just like, but there's always, you know, it's like, you know, let, let's have a really fun show and let's, you know, make the most out of it. And, you know, it's like, have a, have a good time. Yeah. Mm. See, now, now that we talk about it further, we, we just had a screen, we had two screenings for Amish and, uh, you know, I don't know how I managed to say that I didn't have imposter syndrome earlier. I must've been having a low blood sugar moment because <laughs> now, now that we're talking about it, all of these thoughts are now flooding into my mind. Like I remember, you know, two weeks ago when we had a screaming, screaming, screening uh, in Vancouver, <laughs> I was mortified. I sat there basically clutching my friend Jen's hand through the whole movie. And we had Whoa. another, yeah, we had another screening here in Los Angeles at, at uh, William Morris Endeavor. And I remember just like sweating in a flop sweat. So yeah, so clearly I still have it. And like you, it, it is kind of good because you, it makes, you can't sit on your haunches. You're always trying to go out and be better trying to not have the imposter syndrome but it's still always there yeah but but just uh, to just to reconfirm i think that you're a great actor by the way <laughs> i'm not well, saying that you, you know i'm not saying that you should have it <laughs> no, i think that you're a great actor i think what you're doing is fantastic well, but thank yeah you, it's like, thank but, you. but yeah that's just the way that i feel about myself like i think that yeah it's just like there's always a really big question of my own self-identity and it's just like, are the things that I'm doing, is it correct? Or, you know, is this going to be able to be beneficial for other people? Or, you know, are these going to be able to impact people in a better life? And, you know, it's like with what you and your mother do every Christmas for the past few years with, you know, helping out the homeless is amazing, man. It really is. And it's like, I have so much gratitude for what you're doing. It's like, you've been able to, you know, say, like, I don't know if you believe in an afterlife or anything, but you know, it's like if they would ever ask you, it's like, have you been able to give joy to other people? You can 100% say yes. You know, it's like, and a lot of people can't say it. A lot of people are just really swept up in their own worlds and they, and you know, it's just a world of negativity, but mm-hmm. it's like what they need to understand is the more that you give to other people and the more that you do to benefit other people, the better that you feel about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I, I definitely love to, um, I definitely feel much more better in my heart and soul when I'm actually giving. I, I'm not someone who likes to, you know, receive. I, I, I'm not a materialistic guy. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, it's just I. That's what makes me feel good. Mm. Are you doing the same thing this year? Yeah. So it's going to be interesting. So my mom now uh, has she, apparently she's got stockpiles. So she's already sent the box to uh, my my mom's partner's daughter in Moncton, New Brunswick. So she's going to be giving some out to the homeless in Moncton, New Brunswick. And uh, she's going to be sending me a box here. So I'm actually in LA until December 5th. So it'll be early Christmas presents, but Doreen's Knitted Fashions will be uh, that first week of December. And then I head back to uh, Pointe de la Croix, Quebec. I'm actually doing some, uh, I'm, for the first time ever, I'm doing some acting intensives there uh, for a middle school uh, in Listigouch. And um, I'm helping out my cousin 
uh, or leading a, a, an acting in, uh, program uh, in Listigush as well. So I, I'm going to be teaching a two-week intensive for the adults in addition to an eight-week course while they prep to do a two-performance live performance there. So I'm going to be home for that. And then we're going to be going to Toronto to spend Christmas there. And we'll probably do that in Toronto. So there's going to be a little bit of Doreen everywhere this year. She's doing a North American tour, basically. Yes. <laughs> well, tell Doreen from me that she's an amazing woman. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pass that on. You, you'll, you'll make her day, that's for sure. Because it's, it's, it's so easy just to like not do it, you know? It's just like, oh, yeah. you know, I won't do it this year. I'll just like, you know, go on a holiday, or, you know, go to like Hawaii or, you know, just have like, or, you know, a good summer and all that stuff. But it's just like, it, it takes a lot of discipline. And but yeah, it's, it's really good what your mom and yourself is doing. Oh, well, thank you, Alan. Appreciate that. <laughs> that's so good. So, um, yeah, what's in the future for you? What is in the future? Um, what is in the future? Uh, just continuing on, uh, I've got some projects coming out. So Amish just came out this past Saturday on Lifetime. Um, it can be seen uh, on, on their streaming platforms. Bones of Crows, sorry, uh, Washington Black will be coming out this fall. Uh, I play another Frenchman in this. This uh, seems to be my niche right now, which is great. And then a really pivotal series is coming out on CBC next year uh, in the spring. It's called Bones of Crows. It was written and directed by Marie Clements. It actually premiered at TIFF and started VIF this year. Uh, really watershed movie, especially with what has been going on in Canada with the discovery of the unmarked graves in residential schools. So if you are able to you know, stream in Canada somehow, uh, that's a series that you would definitely want to uh, to put on your calendar. I think I have a VPN, so I'll be able to check that out. <laughs> Perfect. There you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much, Troy, for being on the show. Oh, my goodness. Alan, it was like you said, uh, you know, we want to have a fun conversation. That's what it was. I appreciate it. Thanks for the chat.